As we continue our series through the book of Ephesians, the title of the series is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. God cares about how we behave because God cares about how He is represented in His world. You all know that we have, if you name the name of Jesus, if you're a professing Christian, then you have been called out of the world and unto God in order to represent Him in His world. And that's why you are now part of this new thing called the the body of Christ. His physical body, Christ's physical body, left 2,000 years ago. But he has left his presence on earth in the form of the Holy Spirit in his people who have formed his body in his world. We represent him. And so God cares how we behave because God cares how he is represented. And in the book of Ephesians, as we have seen over now, this is the 17th week, as we've seen over these many weeks together, God recounts for us all that he has done to bring us to himself and out of the world into this new body, the church. So in chapters 1 through 3, we see what God did in eternity past in choosing those who would come to him, Ephesians 1, what he did in time present in Ephesians 2. When we came to him, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, famously, Ephesians 2 and verse 8 tells us. And then in chapter 3, Paul, who wrote this letter, extols this marvelous thing called the church and how even the angels marvel at what God has done in bringing people of disparate backgrounds together, unified in this one body. Now, in order for God's character to be honored, for him to be praised for what he's done in this thing called the church, that means that those who are members of it, you and me, need to then fulfill the purposes for which God has formed the church. And so beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1, we are told we have to live now worthy, consistent with the calling that we have received. And that calling, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4, is to be unified. So we saw a few weeks ago, over a couple of weeks, how important it is that the body of Christ be unified and that we all do all that we can to, according to verse 3 of Ephesians 4, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And then beginning in verse 17, Paul, who wrote it, begins to tell us how we need to live different kinds of lives, holy lives, separate from the world. If we're going to represent God, we're going to be a unified people and we're going to be a holy people. And so from chapter 4 and verse 17 all the way to chapter 5 and verse 21, we're told about the need for us to live holy lives. And in those verses, we're told what those holy lives look like. We started seeing that just a couple of weeks ago. And in the outline that was inserted in your program, if you haven't already, I encourage you to pull that out and take a look at it. We saw last week some specifics about what holy living looks like according to God. Separate, distinct, set-apart, holy living among Christians. And that description, that detailed description, begins in verse 25. And from from chapter 4 and verse 25 to chapter 5 and verse 4, there are six things, we are told, that characterize those who live holy lives. Now, we've started looking at the first three of those six. The first three of them are listed in the insert that you have. We started it last week. And then we will continue and get numbers 4 through 6 sometime this millennium, I think. And I say that because if you were here last week, you know that we didn't finish. And I told you on purpose last week, we'll finish one of the three points. And so that first Roman numeral has been filled in for you, that's why. At the, at the introduction to this section now that gives us details on what holy living looks like, we saw that holy living is relational. You see that at the top of your outline? And holy living is positive, and holy living is is reasonable. 
Now, if you don't know what any of that means, I don't have time to re-explain it as we did last week, but all of our messages are recorded and on our website, and I encourage you to listen to that. Holy living is relational, and it is positive, and it's reasonable. And then we began to delve into, beginning in verse 25, what those specifics are. And we saw that God has given us new clothes, as it were. Chapter 4 talks about us being a new man. And the old man is increasingly to be discarded with his characteristics. And the characteristics of the new man are to be continually put on. What are those characteristics of the new man? Well, the new you wears a different set of clothing, has a different wardrobe. The new you wears, we say Roman numeral one, truth. From verse 25. Now we're going to see today from verses 26 and 27 that the new you wears peace. The new you wears peace. In verses 26 and 27, just like verse 25, and as we'll see next week, because we're only going to finish Roman numeral 2 today, but as we'll see next week, verse 28 All of these contain all three elements of holy living, that it's relational, that it's positive, and that it's reasonable. That is, that in order to do this, in order to wear this peace, just like wearing truth last week, it is done in relationship with other people. It's positive in that it's not simply a matter of what we do not do, but rather it is a matter of what we are to positively pursue. And it's reasonable because God gives us a reason for the commands that he gives in verses 26 and 27. Now, what does the the Bible tell us about this issue of us wearing, wearing peace? Notice verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to explain these two verses. And then I would like to spend most of our time making application of what it means to stop, to cease being angry. To keep short accounts with regard to our anger in our relationships. And what it means not to give the devil a foothold. When verse 26 says, do not sin in your anger, it's indicating that it's possible to be angry without sinning. Have you ever considered that? That there is some anger, there are some forms of anger that are not sinful. Now, as we're going to see, most forms of anger that we express are indeed sinful. But it is possible to express anger in a way that is righteous. How do we know this? Well, it's a number of ways, but one is in chapter 5, the next chapter in Ephesians, In verse 6, it tells us about the wrath, the anger of God. That God possesses anger, and of course the anger that God possesses is always righteous. Further, Jesus himself was righteously angry. Mark chapter 3 tells us that on one occasion Jesus was uh, tempted, he was tried by his uh, opposition. And they were on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, and they were watching Jesus very closely, Mark tells us in chapter 3, to see if he would heal a man who had a withered hand. And then they would make accusation against him for working on the Sabbath and thus violating the law. And Jesus knew that they were doing this, and so it says he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. You know about the cleansing of the temple in which Jesus engaged. And he saw his house being used for monetary gain. He made a whip and he chased those money changers out of the temple. Jesus was righteously angry on a number of occasions when he walked the earth. And it is true for you and me that if we are going to be righteous people, there are times when in indignation, Anger is going to need to rise up in our righteous souls because of what we are observing. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield said, 
quote, it would be impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of wrong and to be indifferent and unmoved. And this explains some of the Psalms, then, that you read in the book of Psalms. If you've read through the 150 Psalms that comprise that book, you know that some of them have some very difficult, very direct language to them where the psalmist cries out to God to kill his enemies and to do so in very violent terms. We wonder about that. Is that Christian? Maybe that was a different God in the Old Testament. When Jesus came along, he revealed, you know, the really loving guy. Same God, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. His character has never changed. But those psalms are in a particular category called the imprecatory psalms. It is praying an imprecation on on not just my enemies, but more importantly, God's enemies. And the anger expressed in those psalms is not anger about me personally being violated, but it's about God and His character being violated. And it is a cry for God's righteous and holy character to be vindicated in His world. There is such a thing as righteous anger. We must not compromise with sin, friends, because God never does. But even though there is such a thing then, in verse 26, as righteous anger, and there are times for us to express it, we must also remember our own sinfulness and censor and evaluate our anger because it is very often unrighteous anger. And so there are these three negatives given in these two verses. Do not sin when you are angry. It's possible to be righteously angry, but be careful that when you are angry, you are not sinfully angry. Make sure your anger is free from personal injured pride or spite or malice or animosity and a spirit of revenge. We're told by James in chapter 1 to be slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires, either in our lives or the lives of those with whom we're angry. And we're told another negative in these verses. In your anger, do not sin. And then in verse 26, do not let the sun go down while you are angry. Now, the first part of verse 26, in your anger, do not sin, is a quotation from one of the Psalms, Psalm number 4. Psalm number 4 and verse 4. And here's what that psalm says. In your anger do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your hearts. And it speaks of being on your beds in that psalm because that psalm fits into a category called an evening or a nighttime psalm. It was a psalm that when Israelites were going to bed at the end of the day, they would read or recite And in your anger, do not sin, and have your hearts settled now when you lay yourself down to bed. And Paul now makes application of that in Ephesians chapter 4, saying, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. As you go to bed, make sure that you've settled accounts with those with whom you may have engaged in conflict before the end of the day. Paul is saying. Now, I've heard some joke that, you know, I might move to Greenland because day lasts for like three months there, so I can, so I can seethe for a long while. And the point isn't a particular time. In fact, it's not even wait until nighttime and then call at midnight saying, hey, I was going to bed. Now, remember, we had that tiff earlier today, and now you've ticked them off even more because you woke them up. It's take care of it quickly. Settle accounts quickly. Never go to bed angry is a good rule. And failure to adhere to this admonition in Scripture means that that anger will seethe. And it will become resentment. In fact, at the end of verse 26, you see the word angry. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And the first part of verse 26, in your anger do not sin. Anger and angry, they're actually two different Greek words. And the the second one at the end of verse 26 could probably uh, well be translated resentment. Do not become resentful because you have failed to keep short accounts. 
but rather resolve the issue as quickly as possible. And then the third negative, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and then in verse 27, do not give the devil a foothold. The devil loves to create strife among people, and he loves particularly to create strife among God's people, because he seeks to destroy what God is building. He has that very character. It is a manifestation of who he is and what he is. And what is he? Well, the Bible tells us. Jesus said the devil was a murderer from the beginning. From the very beginning, Satan's objective is to destroy, relationally destroy, that which God is building. And if we give way to sinful anger and we fail to keep short accounts, we will allow the devil to create a wedge in his body, in our relationships, in that which God is building. Now that's what verses 26 and 27 are telling us. But those need to be applied to our everyday lives. And so I'd like to spend the rest of our time going through five things, five general truths that the Bible overall tells us about anger. And then we're going to look at seven tests of anger in your life and in my life. And so bear with me as we go through these first, these five truths. They're not in your, printed on your outline. You know, if I loved you, I would have done that, but you'll just have to write them down if you care. But the first of these general statements about anger is that the Bible itself, throughout, <laughs> is about anger. If you were to ask the question, Who's the most angry person in the Bible? You know, the answer to that question could very well be God himself. Do you know why? God is angry because sin is so pervasive. And the Bible tells us then that God is angry with sinners at all times. Without the covering of the blood of Jesus to appease his righteous and holy wrath, God is angry with sinful people all the time. The most angry person in the Bible could be said to be God. But the Bible, of course, tells us that this same God is a loving God as well. And as it applies to us, his children, how does his anger work out? David Paulison, who's the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling, has written a series of articles on this issue of anger. And I'm indebted to him for, for what follows. But he says... You cannot understand God's love if you don't understand his anger. Because he loves, he's angry. Now hear this, he's angry at what harms. Because God loves, he is angry at what harms. And of course, sin always is harmful. And so in love, God's anger meted out the penalty for our sin. Thanks be to God if you're a child of God, if you've come to Him through Jesus Christ, that anger was poured out on the lovely Son of God, God the Son, came to take the fury of God's righteous anger so you don't have to. But He did that in love. In love, God's anger poured out on the Son of God to pay the penalty for sin that you deserved and I deserve. In love, God's anger doesn't stop there. Because he loves us, he is angry at what harms, and that means ongoing sin in our lives that continues to harm us. God's anger motivates him to root out the very power of sin, broken at the cross and through his Holy Spirit and through his Holy Word. He is rooting out the last vestiges of sin in our lives. Why? Because he's angry at that which harms. And further... In love, God's anger is going to one day remove the very presence of sin. For now, those who would do harm to God's people, those agents of evil, are used for His purpose. Namely, through suffering, He transforms us. But one day, He's going to root that out as well. Because He loves, He hates, is angry toward all that harms. Do you know that every element, and this will be a good study sometime, 
But every element of love given in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is the exact opposite of anger. And God, in His love, is angry at that which harms and that which allows love to flourish. The most angry person in the Bible could very easily be said to be God. Or you could answer that question this way as well. The most angry person in the Bible is Satan. Satan has unrelenting anger as well, but of course it's not motivated by love for anyone. It's anger that motivates him to destroy. And so the last book of your Bible, Revelation chapter 12 says, the devil is filled with fury, Revelation 12 and verse 12. And so this shows that anger can, on the one hand, be absolutely right. As we've said, there can be righteous anger. God expresses it in his love. He hates all that harms. But it can also be utterly wrong. And you and I have difficulty differentiating between the two in the everyday stuff of life. You get angry and I get angry. And the question is, whose anger are we manifesting? Is it the righteous anger of God or the unrighteous anger of the devil? And so here's a second general statement with regard to anger from the Bible. The Bible's about anger. And anger for you and me is something that we do. And I have do underlined and italicized because it's important to understand that anger is something that we personally engage in and we engage in this anger with all that we are every part of us it's not just a chemical it's not just one part of us it is everything about us with every part of who we are with our body physically there's the flushed face the adrenaline surge the clenched muscles and the in the neck, the churning stomach, the nervous tension. Most of the words in, that Scripture uses for anger communicate through vivid bodily illustrations. Because it involves all that we are doing this, including physically. It's no accident that most of the phrases that we use to describe someone who's angry work off of these physiological effects. We say things like, he or she was hot under the collar. They were steamed. Breathing fire, volcanic, seeing red, hot-blooded, a slow burn. That anger is unmistakably physiological. And so it lends, it lends some plausibility to the medical theories that view anger as basically physiological. And so, something that can be soothed through medication. And so, of course, our hormones and blood flow and muscles and and, and grimaces, they all resist, register anger. But if we think that's all there is to it, we sell the Bible short. It's part of it. It involves all of us. It's something we do. It is physical, but it is not only physical. Biblically, the whole person does anger. It involves our thoughts. When we have this internal camera that replays the whole scenario over and over again and the stuff you did and the stuff you did last week and the stuff you did last year that angered me and I think about it and I brood about it and I rehearse imaginary scenarios it involves us physically it involves our, our us mentally with our thoughts it involves us behaviorally it might be the couple that I read about <laughs> who engaged in a gunfight because they were so angry. Nobody here yet. Or it might just be you're angry at your spouse and he or she's trying to communicate to you and you ignore them by burying your face a little bit deeper into the book or magazine that you're, that you're reading. And all of this that involves us physically, and involves us mentally and behaviorally. It's all targeted at someone or someone with a capital S. Our anger as human beings was poured out at God when He walked the earth. 
When God was here, we killed him. Showing just how angry we are at righteousness. Anger is, friends, physical and emotional and mental and behavioral. And so anger is dealt with throughout the Bible. It's something that we do with all that we are. Here's a third thing. It's natural. Anger is natural. Now, you and I have to be careful as we read Scripture and we then summarize with statements like this. Anger is natural. Because we make the mistake that I have heard a zillion times over the years, particularly from parents, things like, well, it's only natural that Johnny or Susie wants to do whatever it is. Well, see, here's the problem with what Johnny and Susie naturally want to do. Johnny and Susie are naturally what? So the fact that it's natural really doesn't help us. <laughs> and stating that it's natural is not really a, a rationale for engaging in anything. So what do we mean when we say anger is natural? Well, God in creation has given us a God-given capacity to be angry. That's a good thing. That came from God. In creation, he gave us the capacity to be angry. Adam and Eve should have been violently angry at the serpent in the garden. God made them with that capacity, but in their sin, they were not. And so God created us with this capacity. That's a, that's a good thing, but it is also natural now because of our fallenness, because of sin. And so now we are angry at the wrong persons and at the wrong things. You do not have to teach a child to throw a tantrum, do you? They come by it naturally. And so the Bible is about anger. Anger is something we do with our a whole person. Anger is natural in that it's a God-given capacity to respond to evil. But because we are now evil, we respond to the wrong persons and the wrong things with our anger. Here's a fourth thing that the Bible teaches, and that is that anger is learned. Now, just as anger being natural has these two components, it's natural in creation before the fall, a God-given capacity that has now been tainted by sin, same thing here with regard to learning. There is sinful learning, sinful nurture of our anger, and then there is grace nurture of our anger. You're going to learn about anger from lots of places. And the Bible teaches you and I better pick very carefully how we learn and from whom we learn to exercise anger. The world will be happy to teach you. To cultivate the natural sinful anger you already have. And now you will have that modeled before you in unbiblical ways. Anger is taught and it's modeled. And through those that we have as our models, we learn what to be angry about and how to show our displeasure with what we're angry about. And most of you are thinking right now, yeah, how did I learn how to express my displeasure at what, I'm, what I don't like? You've all got your own way. We should just have a testimony time for you to tell us your way. It might be outbursts. It might be seething, depending on your personality, and depending on what you had modeled before you. That's why the Bible says, be very careful who you have as your models. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. We learn a style of anger. Did you know that if you go to different cultures, they express anger differently? Because they learn it from each other. But at its root, it is the same sinful heart simply being manifested differently by what has been learned because of what has been modeled. And fifthly, the Bible teaches that anger is a moral matter. 
anger evaluates and it is evaluated. I'll explain. It evaluates and it is also evaluated. Anger evaluates because it weighs something or someone. It finds them lacking or wrong or displeasing and then it moves into action. You see, that's what we do when we're angry. We're evaluating. We're evaluating someone or something. We make a determination that it's wrong, it's unjust, it displeases us for whatever reasons, and then it motivates us into action. What we typically think of as anger, a, a raised voice, accusatory words, emotional heat, a hostile attitude. It's probably best defined this way. It's the emotionally aroused form of judgment against perceived evil. I perceive this evil. Now we're going to see in a little bit your perception may or may not be right. <laughs> in fact, very often it's wrong. You see, anything I don't like has to be evil. It's, it's unjust. <laughs> I mean, it's unjust that stuff exists in the world that I don't like. Right? That's kind of the way we think. Everybody and everything should conform to what I want. And so we have a perception that something is wrong or lacking, and then we are motivated by that anger. Anger evaluates. But it's also evaluated. It's evaluated by God. We have to ask ourselves then the question, am I angry at the right things? And if so, am I angry in the right way? If I'm sitting at home and I am reading a book, which I often am, and the phone rings, and we have, each of us in our family, like most in your family, have cell phones. But if the person who calls does not have the courtesy to call me on my cell, which is sitting next to me in my chair, but rather calls on the landline, and the other people in my house don't have the courtesy to be near it, this means I have to interrupt my reading to go get that phone call. Now, under my breath, if I were a cursing man, I could curse. Now, I'm not a cursing man, but I've got Christian ways of sort of cursing under my breath. I'm not happy about this, and I murmur about it, and I'm angry, and what I'm suggesting is this phone call is bad, and it deserves to be damned. And God evaluates that. God evaluates my criterion for judgment and my way of reacting. And in that instance, God says, I'm evaluating and both of them are wrong. Now, if I, if I speak ill of an adulterer and I gossip about him, then my anger says this, adultery is wrong and that wrong should be met by gossip and slander and in that instance God evaluates this way he evaluates my criterion for judgment and he finds the criterion right adultery is wrong but he evaluates my way of reacting and he says that's wrong if my child mocks her mother and I respond with vigorous loving reproof my anger says this, disrespect is wrong and should be met energetically with respect, challenge, and mercy. And in that case, God is still evaluating. And he evaluates my anger, both the criterion and the way I reacted, and he says they're both right. You see, friends, in all of our expressions of anger, it's a moral matter, and God is evaluating. And God is evaluating the basis upon which we determined that something was wrong or evil, and he's also evaluating the way in which we've reacted. It's a moral matter. Our culture says anger is neutral. Anger just is. But God says it's not that anger just is. It must be evaluated. And I, God, evaluate it. And you and I must do so as well. And so I told you that we would give you seven ways to test your anger. God is angry 
righteously angry. But Satan is angry as well. And the question for you and me is, on whose side is our anger? And here are seven tests for that. Ask yourself, do you get angry about the right things? As we said earlier, anger addresses wrongs that we perceive. But we need to ask ourselves, did I perceive correctly? A person may become angry at things he has no business being angry about. You know, we each generate our own set of expectations, our own laws, our own criteria of good and bad, and we react angrily when these laws are broken. Jonah's an example of this in Scripture. You all remember the four chapters of Jonah? God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He went in the opposite direction. God has ways of turning you around. He used a great fish to do that. And, you know, we, I, I was taught, actually, as a Sunday school kid, that the reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh is because the Ninevites were so, so fierce, and he was afraid of them. You get to chapter 4, the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he knew God was merciful. He says this to God. I knew you were a merciful God, and I thought you might save them. And these people are not savable. They don't deserve to be saved, so I didn't want to preach to them. That's what he says. Now, he had made an evaluation about these people, and it is an incorrect evaluation. He had perceived God's compassion on people and the withering of the shade plant as serious wrongs. And much sinful anger arises from our misperceptions. If I expect roast beef for dinner and I get macaroni and cheese, if I grouse about that, is my anger neutral? It's evil. Because I am not grateful for what God has provided through those through whom he has provided it. Much anger arises from perceptions that are distorted by the beliefs and the cravings and the expectations that substitute for God's rule in our hearts. Friends, is it morally wrong for things in your life to just be different than the way you want them? The answer to that should be obvious, but the answer to that is no. God never told you that things would go the way you want them to. But when you are angry because they're not, you have established a standard having you angry about the wrong things. Now, perhaps your anger is justified. You may be angry at something that you ought to hate. You might accurately perceive a wrong, and that wrong may be against you personally. It might be harshness from your spouse or a parent or disrespect from your child, or lying by an employee, or fraud by a salesman, or rape by a relative. Or you might observe evil done publicly or to somebody else. Something heinous like child molestation, verbal cruelty. In our culture, homosexual, abortionist propaganda, lies and manipulation by a televangelist. Or wartime atrocities. And in those instances, anger is the appropriate Christian response. And you would be a stone... Or a stoic if you didn't feel some degree of anger. But at that point, another question arises. I have to evaluate, am I angry about the right things? But even if I am, do I express it the right way? And you need to ask yourself, as I need to ask myself, are we seeking to condemn or are we offering to help? If we're looking first to condemn, then we're assuming God's role who says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And in so doing, we are also forgetting the log that is sticking out of our head as we seek to take care of the speck in someone else's eye. It is a good thing that the Bible reserves ultimate judgment, capital punishment, to the government, not to us. God is not interested in vigilante justice. Assuming your anger is appropriate, are you expressing it constructively to the glory of God? Or is it full of self-righteousness and punitive 
sinful anger. And apply that to the more run-of-the-mill things in life, not capital punishment, but things like a stubborn teen or a sullen husband or a co-worker running off at the mouth or a committee that you're trying to lead that just veers off in a fruitless direction. And the question in all of those instances for every one of us is, how will I love? Will I return evil for evil or will my words be constructive? And whether forceful or mild, will my words give grace to those who hear? Thirdly, how long does the anger last? We've already seen that God commands you keep short accounts. We often let it fester, and we become, in doing so, like those who have wronged us. And when that happens, the devil wins. The devil has that foothold. Jesus said in the model prayer for his disciples, he said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we forget that Jesus went on to explain, if you will not forgive those who have wronged you, your Father will not forgive you. Do you get over your anger or does it fester? Do your attitudes toward people become poisoned with malice, disdain, condemnation? Where you keep short accounts on your own sins, including your manifold sins of anger, mercy will continue to flow into your life, making you a merciful person to others. Fourth, how controlled is this anger? Godly anger is an emotion controlled by a purpose that's imposed on us by God. It's consistent with the fruits of the Spirit, things like self-control and gentleness and patience. Ungodly anger is emotion controlled by the impulses of our own hearts, and it runs out of control, and it's harsh, and it's easily provoked. Some of you know the author Jay Adams. He said this, Anger is the emotion that has been given by God to attack problems. The energies of anger must be productively released under control toward a problem. Anger must be directed toward destroying the problem, not destroying the person. Anger, like a horse, must be bridled. Is your anger controlled by a godly agenda? By confidence in God's sovereignty, submission to His purposes, or is it out of God's control? Unpredictable, vigilante, abusive, brooding. Is it grace-giving or is it judgmental? God's purpose is for us to be a conduit of grace in response to our anger. Now, you're going to be provoked. When your child mocks or defies you as a parent, you don't simply sit there and in a detached way observe and say, that's interesting. I believe I'm hearing and seeing something that fits the category of sin. Why, yes, indeed, as I think about it, that pattern of words is inconsistent with obedient respect. I wonder how I should handle that. No, you react emotionally. A child is not supposed to mock his parents. And the offense rightly pushes a button and arouses something in you. Now that anger easily becomes sinful, but it doesn't have to. It can be bridled. Let's deal with this. The anger provides energy to name clearly what was wrong, discipline the child, talk with him, comfort him, and give love to him. And anger is sinful and destructive if it's punitive rather than righteous and loving. Fifthly, ask yourself what motivates your anger. Anger arises from a motive. People motivated for God's glory or motivated by conformity to who Jesus is or motivated by the well-being of others, they're going to be angry one way and people motivated by selfish desires, pride, are going to be angry in a different way. So ask yourself, What do I really want? And you know you lie to yourself, right? About what you really want. So here's what you should do. Have other people evaluate that. Other godly counselors evaluate what you really want in how you're expressing your anger. 
Okay, that's it. All right, I'll try to hurry. But as an example, if you asked a reasonable question, if I'm teaching a class, you ask a question, and I said, you know, that's really stupid. Or if I was standing close to you and I slapped you across the face. Then you'd feel shame and shock and humiliation and anger as well you should. But the question is, what are you going to do with that? What's going to motivate you? And if you seek to use that now to help me see my problem and see the error of my way and bring honor to God, now you're using it as it should be used. But if I grow bitter and brood and scheme, test number six. Is your anger primed and ready? And here's all that means. Look, if we're in relationship with folks on a regular basis, then there's certain patterns that happen, right? And so, when the thing happens that happened last week or last month or yesterday or last hour, am I primed and ready to pounce on that? So that we have the same repeated arguments in which the verbal volleys follow the same scripted pattern time after time. And if that's the case, it reveals that something's wrong with our anger. When issues get dealt with daily, my anger is not supposed to be waiting to happen. The pump is not primed to react. A wrong done today does not lead me to drag out your criminal record of former transgressions. And so I won't say, how many times have I told you? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. You always, you never. Here we go again. I can't believe you did that again. And on it goes. And last, and all of God's people. What's the effect of your anger? Or to put it another way, so how's that working out for you? The way you've been doing this. How's that working out in your home? With your co-workers, with your brothers and sisters? There are two opposite effects to godly anger and ungodly anger. And what's at the, the root of all of it, and then I really am done. I thought I had a slide for this, but I, apparently I don't. But you all have heard me say this before, that this is the way we, this is what we do, all of us. We conjure up in our hearts, first of all, and then in our minds, we say, I want. And then in our hearts, we say, I need. And then I need leads to, I must. Now, so far, this is all just me. I'm talking to myself. <laughs> I Want, I need, I must. But then here's where it gets ugly because it's always relational. It then goes to you should. You see, because this is a, this is a I must have whatever it is. I must have roast beef. Not macaroni and cheese. And so you should. And fifthly, you didn't. And so sixth and last, you'll pay. And it all starts with, I want, I need, I must. You should. You didn't. You will pay. So how do you express your anger? And what motivates it? And to what end? God is very serious about this matter. God evaluates our anger. God is serious about our behavior because we are representing Him in this church, in our homes, in our workplaces. We're going to pray and end in just a moment. Thanks be to God, He's angry. It's a good thing that He's an angry God because that means He extols what's right. And He is angry at all that is other than righteousness. And thanks be to God that He also loves and he poured out his anger in love on the Lord Jesus. And so now he has given us the means by which we can express righteous anger rather than unrighteous anger.
And further, for those of you that have never come to God through Jesus Christ, hear this. God's anger, God's wrath is on you. And it will be poured out in unmitigated fury in a place called hell. Jesus took your hell. And he took God's anger. And he invites you to receive the free gift of salvation. And I invite you to do that. By realizing who you are. And recognizing what Christ did. Repenting of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you. And you won't be completely different tomorrow. You'll be a new man. A new man who's beginning to put on new clothes day after day. And you'll start a new life following the Lord. You receive him by praying as we bow in just a moment. No magic formula. You don't have to say this exactly. It's just a sample. But from your heart to God, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sin. I want to follow you rather than go my own way. Lord, take me. Receive me. And he promises to rescue you from his righteous anger. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who took your righteous anger upon himself for us. We thank you that as a result, we do not live under your anger, but rather under your love. And in your love, you still express anger on our behalf. You are angry at still the vestiges of sin that we still express. And that anger at all that harms motivates you to see it removed from our hearts and from our lives. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you that one day you are going to remove all that harms from your world. You are going to destroy all that harms, and you are going to place us in the presence of all that is godly. In the meantime, the suffering that we endure as a result of evil matures us and transforms us into the image of Jesus. So because you love us, you now channel your anger into these good ends for your people. But for those who have never come to you through Jesus, they are still children of wrath. They can be children of God, of the loving Father. And I pray that they are becoming that right now. That there are some in this room who are receiving the free gift of salvation that is available because Jesus paid the cost. Because Jesus took the full wrath of God the Father upon himself so that we don't have to. I pray that they're coming to you. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to draw them to yourself and make them new such that they begin on this new journey. Lord God, help us this week as we seek to live out these, these, these difficult truths with regard to our anger in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and yes, in our church. As a result, may we look like Jesus and may we bring glory to our God. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.